Today's show is brought to you by the new podcast, Dog Smarts. Each episode features leading researchers and academics that tackle the questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to humanity's best friend. Subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. And the show is also brought to you today by Harry's Shaving Products. They make top quality shaving accessories and German engineered razors at a ridiculously affordable price. Are you stuck for a Father's Day gift in the eternal limbo of socks, some kind of digital golfing thing he'll never use, a bottle of something he could just as easily buy for himself? Until June 9th, Harry's is offering economy shipping on a beautiful Father's Day shaving kit. I got mine early. It comes with a matte black razor handle with satisfying heft and a chrome razor stand cube that is also incredibly satisfyingly weighty and shaving gel, three razors, an option to add custom engraving, and maybe, most importantly, it shaves beautifully. Dads like to feel special. They like to feel pampered, even if they won't admit it. Pamper your dad, or any dad you know. At $35 with our special offer code, it's a really good deal. Go to harrys.com right now, and they will give you, as a Think Again listener, $5 off your first purchase with promo code THINK. Don't wait. Economy shipping for Father's Day ends on Thursday, June 9th, so act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers around. On the Think Again podcast, we leave our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's interview archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. Today, I'm very happy to be sitting here with Jeff Dyer. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, who has won more prestigious awards than I can list here for criticism, fiction, and nonfiction. I've just read his new book, White Sands, Experiences from the Outside World. White Sands is, on the surface, a kind of travel diary. Jeff goes to French Polynesia in Gauguin's footsteps. Jeff goes to China on a book tour. But it's the things he notices while traveling, sometimes mundane yet hilarious, sometimes profoundly philosophical, without ever being ponderous or boring, that make the experience of reading the book unique. It will change the way you think about places and who you are in them. Welcome to Think Again, Jeff. Oh, great. Thank you. Great to be here. I guess what I wanted to say is that there are a number of threads running through the book. One of them is this idea of traveling, that you go to places that are supposed to be invested with specific meaning or that have been invested with meaning by other people. You go there for some reason. There's a goal in mind. But then when you get there, the experience of being there is completely different from what's expected or the goal vanishes. Sometimes the thing is disappointing in one way, yet the opposite in another. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's a pretty fair summing up of what's going on. Quite often I arrive in a place and it might be initially disappointing, but in every chapter, I think, the experience turns out to have been worthwhile, even if it's not the experience I thought I was going to have. Uh, in some cases, though, and I'm thinking particularly of when I visit uh, the Lightning Field, right. that is the Walter de Maria installation in New Mexico. I mean, I, I say the word installation, and it's actually the wrong word, but I think it's quite interesting why it's the wrong word. So this is a place you can't just visit. You can't just turn up in your car and you know have a quick look for, for 20 minutes. The deal is that 
six people can stay there overnight and you have to stay overnight in this lovely little hut. And when you're first taken up there at a, in a pickup truck at about two in the afternoon, it's incredibly disappointing because there's almost nothing to see this mile by a kilometer of vertical steel poles. They're almost invisible because the sun is overhead. Right. Uh, and it really is incredibly disappointing. You've just come to a sort of rather <laughs> barren patch of high desert. But it turns out that it's really, really great the way that they've insisted that you stay overnight because as the sun moves, the poles become more strictly defined. Okay. And you realize, no, this is not an installation. It's actually an experience of space that unfolds over time. Right. And I, although it turns out that actually, although it's called the lightning field, there's very rarely any lightning, that doesn't mean, that doesn't diminish the experience at all. Although, of course, it would be great if you did get to see lightning, the kind of lightning as featured on the cover of American Visions by Robert Hughes. But right. for me, as, a, as an atheist, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it felt like a pretty religious experience. That's really interesting. I mean, at one point you go very far north, I guess. Where exactly are you when you're trying to see the northern lights? Oh, yeah. The ill-fated trip to, uh, to Svalbard to see the northern lights. Where yeah, it, yeah. it turns out that at one point we're told, oh, you've come too far north. <laughs> yeah. So there, so there, that's a destination which like almost anyone can relate to, whether they're interested in art or not. It's this, it's meant to be this incredibly spectacular experience. You know, it's, it's like, I don't think there's anyone on earth who would not get the wow factor of seeing the Northern Lights. And that's an experience that turns out to be an utter and complete disappointment. Whereas the lightning field is the kind of thing that I think more kind of crassly pragmatic and goal-oriented people might be like, why would I go sit in a field and look at some steel poles? And you have an extraordinary experience there. Yeah, I think everyone w would. Um, but you're absolutely right to mention the Northern Lights non-experience. I'd forgotten. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Of course, it, that in itself becomes a transcendently wonderful experience for the reader. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it's hilarious, the cascade of things that go terribly wrong from you know your disastrous dog sledding trip and, and beyond, it's very funny. Yeah, that would be an example of the trip, which, uh, oh, well, it's a, you know, one of the classic justifications for writing that you know, everything that happens to you can be turned to advantage in writing. So I'm, you know, I'm glad I went because yeah. I was able to write it up. If I hadn't been able to write it up, it would have had just been a totally, a totally miserable time. I also liked the sort of the meditation on the faith aspect of the Northern Lights. The fact that you know you all ended up feeling like you had somehow let your guides down by not seeing them. Yeah, they 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 intimated to it. There were a couple of occasions when they claimed that the Northern Lights had put in a brief appearance <laughs> and that we we'd miss them because of what, uh, because of our, our bad attitude. And, uh, <laughs> you know, in that regard, I, I have something in common with Meatloaf, who in that song famously claimed he was born with a bad attitude. Uh, <laughs> but we went with a good attitude, which only turned bad when we realized that we weren't seeing the Northern Lights. And then our bad attitude turned even worse when it was <laughs> suggested that it was somehow that their failure to appear had somehow been generated by some uh, our karmic indisposition. And then the upside of that was it turned into a kind of bonding moment for you and your wife, actually, the, the miserable experience. 
yes, up that, there. that's right. <laughs> it, uh, it, it, that, that was certainly the case in the writing. <laughs> <laughs> so I wondered if you could read a short section from the book. This is from one of the early chapters called Where, What, Where. Uh, you've gone to French Polynesia following Gauguin's footsteps. Gauguin had, had gone there and, and, I guess, lived out the rest of his life there. And this is where you're about to leave. In lieu of tea or lunch with Gauguin's heir, I joined some other tourists for a boat trip to a nearby island. The minivan taking us to the boat was late, but this did not matter because when we got to the port, the boat was not ready to sail. That was the thing about Eva Oa. The huge wait to leave contained within it other little pockets of waiting, so that one was caught in an endless hierarchy of waiting. I was always waiting for the next bit of waiting, climaxing with the final day's waiting in which I would wait to be transferred to the airport, where I would wait for the plane taking me back to Tahiti before the wait for the enormous airborne wait of the flight back to LA, more waiting, and on to London itself. In a sense, that is what we are here for, to wait. In Tahitian terms, to put on weight. While waiting, however, one necessarily ponders other questions, questions that don't go away, irrespective of how long one waits. The questions that stay put, the same questions according to Harrison's Ford voiceover in the climactic scene of Blade Runner that the replicant Rutger Hauer wanted answers. Quote, the same answers the rest of us want. Where did I come from? Where am I going? How long have I got? But the answers to those big questions turn out to be small, or at least have to be itemized in detail if they're to have any chance of doing justice to the big question. We are here to accrue unredeemable air miles and tier points, to try to be upgraded on aeroplanes and in hotels wherever possible, to try to alter our itineraries to include Bora Bora and Huahine, and to wish that the internet connections were faster and more reliable. We are here to suffer terrible disorientation and jet lag, and to be played constantly by the desire to be somewhere else, either somewhere else in French Polynesia, or ideally somewhere else altogether, preferably nearer home. We are here to wish that we'd brought different books to read, and to wonder what happened to our biography of Gauguin that got lost en route. We are here to wish that the food was better and to be afflicted by the torment of heat rash and to wish that we had brought some calamine lotion to lessen that torment. We are here to buy presents for our loved ones and then to spend long hours constructing excuses as to why this was impossible because everything in Tahiti is so expensive and there's nothing worth buying anyway. We're here to be bored rigid and then to wonder how it was possible to be so bored we are here to wait at Eva Oa Airport in the drenching humidity and to feel definitively what we have felt before, albeit only fleetingly. That we are glad we came, even though we spent so much of our time wishing we hadn't. We are here to make sure our seat belts are securely fastened, our tray tables stowed, and our seats are in the upright position before takeoff and landing. We are here to go somewhere else. And rather than dissecting that beautiful passage, I'm just going to let it sit there for our listeners. And I think now uh, let's move on to the second part of the show where we watch the surprise videos oh, that yeah. have been chosen for us. Okay. All right. This is Michael Gazaniga, who is a neuroscientist 
I believe, and it is called The Criminal Brain. And before we get into that surprise interview clip, I want to bring you another message from our sponsor, Dog Smarts Podcast. Does my dog understand what I'm saying? Can my dog sense when I'm sad? Can nutrition have a positive impact on my dog's cognitive health? If you've asked yourself these very questions, you need to tune into the podcast Dog Smarts, hosted by leading author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare. Each episode of Dog Smarts brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. Download and subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. And now let's get back into the surprise discussion starter clip and the rest of my great conversation with author Jeff Dyer. So let's say um, brain science in 15, 20 years really understands uh, a certain population of people, say psychopaths, behave the way they do. And let's say we have figured out a treatment for them. So you got the psychopath, he's done the crime, we hold him responsible, now we're at the decision, do we treat him or put him in a slammer, right? Because we now know if we can treat them, they're back to the normal population. They're back doing normal things again. Does that satisfy in us the sense of justice that should be done for the, to this person? Does that satisfy our built-in sense of uh, uh, retribution, which I think humans have in spades? That is a discussion we should be having. We shouldn't be confusing the fact that if someone with a slight or even a serious brain disorder, are they responsible or not? We should have the legal category in our country, which we don't. Guilty, but insane. Not, not guilty, because insane. We should get the responsibility issue clear, and then, as a society, we have to decide, well, what are we gonna do about that person? And just think how interesting it gets. Uh, because I think down the pike there will be treatments. The reason why it isn't a burning issue now is because none of our, our so-called treatment or rehabs or what have you are that great. I think by clearing up this responsibility question, we focus on the real question of what, are, what is our society going to decide to do about this person. And that's a tough one. What are your initial thoughts on, on that idea? Uh, my <laughs> initial thoughts are that he posed the question, and in posing the question in such a, such a way, uh, the question sort of contained the answer, didn't it? Uh, it was pretty convincing, his thing, that we need to arrive at this idea of guilty, not guilty or insane, but guilty and insane. Yeah, I mean, my, my immediate reaction is that you know, and I don't know if this is an unusual position, but I don't feel like people's desire for justice in the sense of retribution for wrong that's been done to them is actually a viable motivation. Like, I don't think that's a good reason to do anything. A society is probably uh, not best arranged al <laughs> along those lines, as we've seen in, that, in the sort of footage that, that emerges of, of that kind of thing. But I think he was right to stress just how deeply that, uh, that desire for retribution is lodged in, in the human brain. I mean, I sometimes wake up in the uh, middle of the night 
seeking redress for some wrong that was done to me uh, a very, very long time ago. Yeah. And in terms of sort of the literary field and squabble, you know, literary injustice. Right. You know, one could sort of think of a kind of retribution where, oh, I'm going to write a revenge review or something. I'm going to settle that person's cash or whatever. But I think one of the things about uh, revenge is that it, it needs to get physical, really, that I can't imagine really deriving much pleasure from knowing that I was really ruining somebody's breakfast as they read something in print. That wouldn't satisfy me. <laughs> what would satisfy me is, you know, the blood and the broken teeth. Uh, I think there is that physical component to I, it, which I, is what the, you know, what the Taliban were able to brilliantly satisfy with those, uh, you know, pub- awful public corporal and uh, punishment and, and executions. Are we, without naming names, are we talking about critics or other writers or both? Oh, the, you know, uh, <laughs> a, 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 anything. Really. I, you know, Anyone just, who has wronged you, yeah, literarily yeah, I, speaking. I, I, I think that, but uh, yeah, and then, um, yeah, I think it, it's not inconsiderable, that, that urge. Uh, but I tend to have a, you know, and I, I don't know whether this is, un, you know, sort of unexamined and, and mystical and something I ought to unpack, but my default kind of response to feelings of revenge is that I would be better off not to follow them up, but rather simply to just kind of let them pass and that my energies are better spent elsewhere. But perhaps not. Perhaps, as you say, if I went and punched someone in the (laughs) face, there would be some great, you know, psychological progress for me or relief or... But I I think actually your, I mean, (laughs) your, your position is quite a common one. And indeed, it's similar to mine. I mean, these... Uh, revenge fantasies that one has. They are fantasies, not just because one is uh, frightened of of punishment, but because, and this is the strange thing about grievances, we just sort of forget about them and we're too lazy to act on them. And there's in one of the Don DeLillo books, I can't remember which, he's talking about the uh, perennial appeal of these gangster and mafia films. And he says, it's because there, the need for revenge is always acted upon, whereas in life it very rarely is. And so it's quite nice to sit there uh, in our lazy way, seeing our (laughs) desire to participate in the act of vengeance being satisfied vicariously. So I think the laziness of this is crucial. Uh, And also, you know, I'm so conscious that uh, I, you know, I really do want to stress my, my, my desire for vengeance is um, you know, I, I suspect it's pretty average, but also my forgetfulness is pretty average as well. So I actually can't even I can't even keep track of the the number of grievances I have going. And I think this is all part of actually just the sort of survival mechanism of being human, because it really wouldn't be practical to live in a in a big city with all of the just the wrongs, the irritations that are inflicted on you on a daily basis. Yes, once. On a very hot day in the summer of, I don't know, 1992, I believe, up near Times Square, a little old lady uh, in a very crowded street elbowed me very, very hard in the ribs because I got pushed into her by somebody else. And I've never forgotten that. But I I, I think I ought to just let it go, probably. Yeah, yes. You really should. But also, it's in some weird way, it's quite fun to hang on to. It, it satisfies us to hang on to these 
things. And it's also, isn't it interesting that just the, the scale of the wrong doesn't really result in a hierarchy of, uh, of remembered wrongs, right. does it? <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Um, well, in, in that case, I think it was the singularity of it, you know, just the unexpectedness of being elbowed in the ribs by a, a woman who was probably an octogenarian, you know. Yes. That yeah. I was that I didn't know that was coming. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, I think let's leave it there and see what the next one has for okay. us. Okay. Lawrence Krauss. Oh, I've met him. Okay. Lawrence Krauss is a physicist and he this video is called Stop Validating Ignorance. Mm. Let's just take a quick breath before diving back into deep thoughts and think about something maybe more important than that. Dads. Dads sometimes get treated as a kind of an afterthought, a utility, like a wrench or, I don't know, plumbing. But a good dad is so much more than that. He can be a role model, your anchor when life seems impossible, the guy who reminds you who you really are. If you're looking for something nice for a dad you know this Father's Day, I would say look no further than Harry's Shaving Products Father's Day set. I got one early, and speaking as a father, it's a beautiful gift. It's in a sleek black box that closes with a satisfying snick kind of sound, and it contains this heavy chrome cuboid razor stand that is really just very pleasing for reasons I can't quite explain. Also a matte black razor handle, Harry's moisturizing foaming shave gel, three of Harry's handcrafted blade cartridges, and the option to add custom engraving. At $40, it's a steal. And for you, Think Again's listeners, if it's your first order from Harry's, it's a full-scale robbery at $35 when you enter the special promo code THINK at checkout. All dads shave, but not all dads are hip to Harry's. If yours isn't, or a dad that you know, this Father's Day set will make him feel like a prince. Go to harrys.com right now, and they will give you, as a Think Again listener, $5 off your first purchase with promo code THINK. Don't wait. Economy shipping for Father's Day ends on Thursday, June 9th, so act now. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. And now, let's get back to the surprise clip and the rest of my conversation with author Jeff Dyer. It amazes me that people have pre-existing notions that defy the evidence of reality, but they, that they hold on to them so dearly. And one of them is the notion of creationism, or in fact, look, Senator Marco Rubio, who's presumably a reasonably intelligent man, was asked, what's the age of the Earth? And ultimately, either because he, he actually believed it or he, w- or he was trying to appeal to some constituency, had to argue that it's a big mystery, that somehow we should teach kids both ideas that the Earth is 6,000 years old and that it's 4.55 billion years old, which is what it is. If you think about that, somehow saying that, well, anything goes, we, you know, we shouldn't offend religious beliefs by requiring kids to know, rea- to understand reality. That's child abuse. And if you think about it, teaching kids that the, or allowing the, the notion that the, the, that the Earth is 6,000 years old to be promulgated in schools is like teaching kids that the distance across the United States is 17 feet. That's how big an error it is. Now you might say, look, a lot of people believe that, so don't we owe it to them to, t- to allow their views to be present in school? Well, as I've often said, the purpose of education is not to validate ignorance, but to overcome it. Technology and biotechnology will be the basis of our economic future. And if we allow nonsense to be promulgated in the schools, 
We do a disservice to our students, a disservice to our children, and we're guaranteeing that they will fall behind in a competitive world that depends upon a skilled workforce able to understand and manipulate technology and science. I feel like we, we very much have a kind of live and let, let live mentality with respect to religion in the United States, but at the same time it disturbs me that so many people hold such unscientific beliefs. Yeah, it was very convincingly put. The analogy with the width of the United <laughs> States being 17 feet was really, really great. But uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's um, one of the things that's that cropped up in a class I was teaching this year is that um, teaching something by, that Lawrence had written. And Lawrence had some crazy ideas. This is T.E. Lawrence? Uh, no, D.H. Oh, oh D.H. Yeah, Lawrence, you know. okay. And he was so hostile, of course, to, to logic, you know, and was always saying, you know, my belief is a, in a religion of the blood, not the brain, right. all this kind of stuff. And of course, was very, very passionate and articulated very, very well, this sense of wonder about being alive. And at some times, though, there, there was a kind of a sense that maybe the increasing scientific understanding of the world resulted in a, could result in a diminution of wonder. And I think this is something that actually it was Carl Sagan who was, uh, you know, in the same line of work as, as Lawrence Krauss. Right. Uh, was really, I think he was the first person I can think of to really call that out as a red herring, whereby actually there's so much going on in the world and the universe that our capacity to be astonished by it will never ever be diminished. And in some ways, our understanding of how things work uh, only increases our capacity for wonder. But yeah, I mean, actually, I, I've found that with the, these latest things of the various spacecraft going, um, you know, further and further afield, I think these are some of the most wonderful things that I've ever heard of. And I, so I, 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 agree. I like yeah. the way that uh, the diminution of ignorance doesn't at all necessitate any kind of diminution in our capacity to want for wonder. I think it's enhanced. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about Lawrence, you know, I was raised on uh, William Blake. Like, William Blake meant a lot to me when I was 15, 16. And I sort of absorbed his religion of Urizen, the, the figure representing reason as being evil. You know, it's sort of like m math and science and the ordering of the world somehow diminishing it as opposed to passion and beauty and art mm -hmm. and such. And it's taken me a long time to kind of grapple with that and get to a point where I, you know, the whole thing about science is that you can never figure everything out and you can never be absolutely certain about what you've figured out. And so the learning process is forever. The curiosity goes on forever. Um, but at the same time, I, yeah, I retain an old suspicion that somehow it's, you know, narrowing the world. How funny to have had a kind of uh, a Blakeian education like, like, like that. But uh, it's so interesting, all that Blake stuff, that kind of, the, the, the sort of weird mythical pictures, but with elements of science in it as well, because the guy is holding his, I don't know, it's not a protractor, is it? Those it's dividers kind of, or whatever. Yeah, angle rule or whatever, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's worth remembering, isn't it? That, you know, science, was it Newton who started out as a sort of, you know, that whole sort of, earlier system of magic and stuff. Yeah. It's not just that it was completely overthrown by science. Science sort of grew out of it. Didn't 
didn't Newton or somebody start out as some sort of alchemist? Oh, that's uh, quite um, possible. I know that I know that Pythagoras was a total mystic. You know, right. he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he had he had some very far out beliefs. Um, and I think also it's worth bearing in mind that I mean something that maybe something that Krauss sort of uh, hints at. There's a in the preface to his book of short stories, Slow Learner. Hmm. Thomas Pynchon, you know, reminds us that ignorance isn't some blank space on the map which we can just inject with knowledge. Right. It has its own its own contours, its own laws, and possibly its own logic as well. And I mean, going back to the sort of end part of Krauss's video where he starts talking about like doing our children a disservice and they'll no longer be competitive in the global economy and so forth and so on. This is where I start to get hostile toward and suspicious of the kind of proselytizers for science because because they always seem to end up at commerce. You know, it always seems to end up at this utilitarian it, it came as a great surprise to discover that he was speaking on behalf of the Human Resources Department of uh, some, some unnamed corporation you know, in, in the fall. But uh, yeah, so I guess the other thing that we should say, I mean, Christ is talking about knowledge, but as we know, as you know, wisdom is found in the desolate market where few come to buy, because we know who said that. So now you've put me on the spot. This is... Shakespeare, I really don't know. It's William Blake, you don't. Oh, it's Blake, oh dear. Yeah, I want that on the record, that the man with the Blakean education didn't recognize one of the, yeah, it's I'm, from one of the crazy prophetic books. It's very wise, I think. The desolate, wisdom is found in the desolate market where few come to buy. And I love the idea that in the, the workforce market that Krauss was mentioning, you know, that there's, there's another market for uh, the unemployable, <laughs> but wise. Yes. And I think on that note, let's uh, let's on see that what note the of humiliation. Total humiliation. <laughs> oh my goodness. I have out Blaked on his home territory. I've been out Blaked. It's been years though, in my humble defense. Um, okay, this is Maya. Oh, I'm going to mangle this name. This is an Eastern European name. Maya Shalovitz, I believe. S Z A L A V I T Z. My apologies to her. She's the author of Unbroken Chain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. Are America's anti-drug laws scientific, or are they colonialist and racist? Okay, let's see. Our drug policy has really been traditionally based on racism and moralizing. The reason that the currently illegal drugs are illegal has nothing to do with a scientific evaluation of the relative risks and benefits. Otherwise, you could never come up with a situation where marijuana is illegal and tobacco is legal. You cannot make a rational argument for that. That comes from racism and colonialism. The drug laws were made in explicitly racist circumstances for explicitly racist reasons. For example, the first anti-cocaine laws were made because cocaine supposedly made black men impervious to bullets and prone to getting involved with white women. This is complete nonsense where there is no science to it whatsoever, and yet it was published in the New York Times in the early 1900s. So this is where our laws come from. And we have to be honest about that, and we have to stop pretending that there is some kind of rational basis for the laws that we currently have. 
then what we need to do is realize that you can't make policy based on, I think it's bad for you to have unearned pleasure. You have to make policy based on, does this hurt you? Does this hurt other people? If you have desperate, unhappy people without jobs, you are going to have a drug selling problem and you are not gonna solve that problem by putting people in jail. the argument for, for legalization is, is irresistible. I think one of the interesting things, uh, and also, that, I mean, it's a, compl it's a side effect, but of course the, you know, the economic thing of actually gener you know, of generating tax as opposed to it going to criminal gangs, yeah. that is increasingly uh, persuasive, and that's a language that, uh, that's a talk that Americans are very receptive <laughs> yes, uh, yes. To, to hearing. Uh, and it's really striking. I'm, you know, I, I live in California, where it's this sort of weird, sort of tacit legalization, yeah. whereby you know you've got a you've got a sore arm, and the the the, um, the oh well, marijuana can help with yeah. that. Hey, bro, um, this <laughs> is this is blue spider. It's really good for your sore arm. Now, yeah, you know. there's that. But <laughs> so it's but I mean, it seems to be gearing up for for sort of full legalization, which was resisted, I think, primarily by the prison lobby, because of course. They've got such a vested interest in stuffing the prisons full of mainly black people. You know, this, I mean, I was really struck when somebody was showing me some, some edibles the other day. Uh, and um, what I was struck by was the packaging, which is to say that it was, it had no element of the kind of moronic drongo kind of uh, furry freak brothers aesthetic, let's say. This was just, it looked like really high-end, <laughs> fancy sort of Belgian chocolate. Artisanal. Yeah, that's yeah. right, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, and you could see this is, yeah, this is, this is really, you know, the green rush is po poised to happen. Slightly alarmingly, and I really, I'm, God, I'm fully on the side of legalization and the, the, the kind of, just in England recently, we've had this thing of, uh, some deaths from ecstasy pills that were impure. Mm -hmm. And so the police have had to do this thing saying, oh, there's, you know, don't take this particular pill, you know. <laughs> and it's the ludicrousness of the situation that she was outlining is r really revealed. But I do feel with these edibles, that it should sort of have in much bigger type, you know, what, uh, in a bit much bolder font, as it were, what the sort of dosage is, because, you know, Young kids, they like to eat chocolate, yeah. and they don't like to wait for the effects to creep in. So, I mean, it seemed to me that it was some more responsible labeling would be a, a good idea. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a bit. So, I have an eight-year-old son, and there are big ads now on the New York subway with a you know photograph of fake marijuana, which is apparently a thing now and had oh, goes by various names. Is it spice? Is it something? I think, called? you know, and they're like, it might be called spice. It might be ah. called this. It might be called that. And my, you know, my son is reading this and he's like, what is fake mar marijuana? You know, and I <laughs> yeah. had to try to explain to him simultaneously, not only what are drugs, but <laughs> what, what, what are fake drugs? <laughs> You know, and oh, I just, so I totally agree with you that some kind of like FDA regulation or at least, you know, some industry monitoring dosage and ingredients and whatever, it can't mm. be a bad thing, right? Yeah, but I mean, as the the the, the, the fact that these things are, are illegal stop, you know, is really is a, is a preventing that happening, yes. you know, but fortunately there are these wonderful re resources like, you know, the vaults of Erowid where you can really... Uh, 
find out, you know, really properly informed, non-axe grinding. I mean, I love, I love. The Vault of Arrowhead, by the way, for, uh, for the audience, it's sort of a giant wiki, I guess, on drugs and psychedelia. Yeah, and it's really great. It's totally objective. But quite often the experience of reading about uh, one of these things is to make me think, God, I'm really, I'm really happy to go to my grave not having experienced that, you know. Typically, I think, I mean, I had this uh, idea that um, I was quite, I think, about, you know, I was thinking, yeah, I'd like to start taking LSD again in my mid-50s. I'm now 57 and I've pushed back. The, what's the opposite of retirement? I've pushed back. My, uh, my, my comeback has been postponed. And I'm thinking, OK, uh, I know my, there was my previous announcement, but I think I'm going to wait till my early 60s. <laughs> yeah, I, I just might, can't face it. If you have your LSD comeback, will you need to set up very fussy and precise conditions? Will you need a certain block of time when nothing is expected of you? Yes, and that block of time would be (laughs) considerable because it would have to include the increasingly lengthy recovery time. Uh, It's one of the things about getting older, isn't it? You know, I can still still love playing tennis and I can have these great games and it's fine. It's just that it then takes me an hour to get out of bed the next day, you know. Would you go to somewhere like Lightning field or that spiral thing that you that went would to. all be good or <laughs> or some place out in you know the classic sort of place like Joshua Tree or uh-huh. something. But the problem with Joshua Tree, of course, is snakes. Oh, you know yes. I can't be That's anywhere where there's any chance of a snake appearing. And of course, the fear of the snake appearing almost guarantees that the branch lying <laughs> on the floor will become a snake. Uh, well, maybe one day the proper conditions will spontaneously occur <laughs> for you. Jeff Dyer, um, thank you so much for being on Think Again. This has been a great and far-ranging conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, me too. Great. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I say it every week, but for anyone who hasn't heard it or hasn't had a chance to do it yet, it means a lot to us if you can take just a minute to rate or review the show on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever it is you're listening to it. Giving us uh, just a couple sentences about what you like and why you enjoy it it makes a big difference in terms of whether other people discover the show. Next week, we have a very special guest. I mean, our guests are always special, but uh, super special, super secret guest next week. I hope you can join us.